Hello and welcome to Health in a Handbasket, your podcast about the sexy world of healthcare engineering. I'm Fidi Sakta and I'll be your host. I'm the Marketing and Community Manager at UCL's Institute of Healthcare Engineering. And although I don't always understand what's written in the research papers published by our academics, I know that what we're doing in the world of healthcare engineering is important and impactful. And I want to share that with you by speaking to those who know a bit more about it than me. Hi again, and welcome to Health in a Handbasket. I'm your host, Fadis, Marketing and Community Manager at the Institute of Healthcare Engineering. And in this podcast, we sit down with an expert to learn about all the wonderful and impactful things happening in healthcare engineering. So today we're picking out the topic of machine learning and AI from our handbasket. It's a contentious topic these days, but we're using it every day. If you're unlocking your phone with Face ID, then that's a form of AI. Or, you know, I'm showing my age a little bit here. Snapchat's new AI chatbot. I used it the other day and I had a really nice chat with the AI where I told them about this podcast and they wished me good luck. And I told them about my life. And it was very interesting. (laughs) I'm sure you've seen all the raging debate about AI being the end of the human race and how we're going to lose our jobs and all of that stuff. But today we're speaking to Peter Woodward Court, who will be covering his work on AI in the healthcare sector and how it works and how it can be used to diagnose certain conditions. Peter is a clinical doctor currently undertaking a PhD at UCL in AI-enabled healthcare systems. His research involves looking at the role of synthetic data to train machine learning models, which could improve the performance of AI decision-making tools. So Peter, what do you do? So yeah, thanks very much for that introduction. I'm a clinician by background. I spent uh, a few years now working as a doctor on the wards, but I've decided to take some time out and I'm now doing a PhD at UCL looking at the interface of healthcare and machine learning. I always get a bit confused by this. So you can be a doctor and a PhD student at the same time. Does that mean you work part time for each job? Yeah, that's that's right. So I was doing a full time job as a doctor in a in a hospital. Um, But then the PhD program I'm doing is now a full time PhD. But I do spend um, a few few days just to make sure I keep up my clinical skills and make sure that I'm maintaining all the sort of relevant professional qualifications I need to do. So you're a doctor Mm. or part-time doctor? At the moment, when you're working part-time, I guess, but yeah, yeah, plan is to go back. Um, How did you get into the field of AI? How do you go from being a doctor full-time to now working in research? Yeah, so I think that when I was at medical school and during my like early years working in, in the wards, I think that, you know, I was really enjoying it and I was really engaged with what I was doing, but I guess I could see that there were some aspects in the way in which certain systems were running that maybe led me to think that like, okay, well, maybe is this the best way in which we're operating? Could this thing be improved in some way? And I guess that around that time was when some of the like early stuff looking at how we could use machine learning to try and solve some of these problems was was coming about. And I guess as I was looking at that, I was thinking that, okay, well, this does seem like a sensible approach. And I kind of was buying into the idea that machine learning could be a bit of a, you know, a shift in how we operate and, and practice in, in medicine. So I think that that sort of put the idea into my brain. And I was thinking like, okay, well, what's going on here? Is this actually something that could be useful? And I felt like the answer was yes. And so I took some time after the beginning of my training to go and do a little like research fellowship and explore like what's going on here and, and spend some time looking at how the you know learning the basics of machine learning and how it actually works in practice. And then yeah, that was going really well. So I then applied to the PhD program at UCL and thankfully got in. And yeah, the rest is history. 
I really like that you finding a passion or a niche and just going for it you know it's kind of scary um so yeah that's pretty cool so what is machine learning yeah it's a it's a really good question I think some of the difficulty that you're alluding to in the introduction comes from the fact that machine learning and artificial intelligence are terms that aren't necessarily super well defined or necessarily there's a universal agreement on exactly what they mean but essentially if I was going to summarize it it's a way of using computers to make a sort of decision if you like um, which it improves on over time using a variety of different methods which we can get into discussing. There are lots and lots of different subtypes but maybe a helpful way of thinking about it in broad terms is to think of it in two categories. The first first one is this idea of discriminative machine learning which um, is essentially trying to say that you're trying to discriminate or separate two or more different groups of things that you're trying to work out. So I guess a classic example in that would be thinking about if you've got a bunch of images of something, let's say you've got an image of a dog and a cat, you can use machine learning to show many, many example images of dogs and cats, and eventually it will learn to discriminate or separate these uh, images into different groups. And once it's done that, it can then say for a new image that's never seen ever before that this is a dog or this is a cat. The other main category, uh, although there are lots, is this idea of generative machine learning. The word is coming from the idea that you're generating new, new content that we haven't seen before. Um, so I guess maybe some people who are listening will have come across ChatGPT, which is quite a new, exciting, um, generative machine model. And that means it's producing new content as you interact with it. So for those who don't know, it's a kind of very advanced chatbot, probably like the Snapchat one you were talking mm. about. And when you interact with it or ask it a question, it will produce an answer that to us makes sense and seems like it's you're almost talking to a human. So, I mean, in all this, we know that machines don't have brains, mm. but they can formulate some pretty empathetic answers, I guess. Mm -hmm. So what does learning mean in this context? I think that sort of it's really important to point out that when a human is looking at something like an image, it's very, very different to you know, when a machine or a computer is sort of looking at an image. It's not quite the same. Mm. When we see an image of, you know, let's say a dog, and um, we sort of just see it as a whole image and we interpret it in our brains to sort of process it as one big yeah. object. Um, I guess one of the things that's different with machines is that if you think about an image, and I guess most people will be familiar with the idea that it's made up of lots of individual pixels. Um, when we're talking about the resolution of an image, for example, we say it's like 512 by 512. That means there's 512 pixels going across and 512 pixels mm -hmm. going down. All of those pixels are just one individual color. But because we're looking at it really far away and it's quite small, it looks like a coherent image to us. And the way in which computers look at that, again, in a sort of simplistic way, is that those images, those little bits of color, the pixels, those get converted for machine learning purposes into numbers. Mm. So you can imagine in a black and white image, zero would represent white and then one would represent black. And then if it's gray, it's just between that zero and one. And then so each that happens to each pixel and it gets converted into just a number. Okay. And then that's kind of what the computer is seeing when it when it sees an image. And then those all get separated out into one really long row. So if you think if you've got an image that's 100 pixels by 100 pixels, that's 10,000 numbers in a big long row. And then the way in which the machine learning model works is that it takes all of those 10,000 numbers or more, depending if you've got a larger image, for example, and it will perform a bunch of kind of relatively simple but fairly high-level maths will just then be applied to those images. And then at the very end you'll be left with two numbers that so will go from 10,000 or however big it is to two at the end if you're thinking about a simple kind of is this a dog or is this a cat kind of model. Mm. The number at the end will be between zero and one. 
Um, so it won't be. It, will it be binary numbers? Or will it be? So yeah, I, I, in this example, we're talking about something in machine learning terms. It's called a binary image classifier, and it basically is trying to say between two groups, is this a dog or is this a cat? So yeah, it's, it's, you're absolutely right. It is binary. But I think that yeah, there are obviously many different types of machine learning models. But yeah, essentially, it comes out with a number at the end, and the number that is at the end, if it's a zero or one or something in between, will be more or less correct. So if you if you gave it an image of a dog originally. Mm. And the output label for that image, you say, would be, for example, one would be, this is the correct answer, this is a dog, or zero would be the answer for a cat. And if the model, after it's taken all those images, comes up with, say, a number that's close to one, then you're like, okay, well, that's great. Like, it's, it's, it's done quite a good job of working out that this is a dog. But the difference, basically, yeah, I don't think, I hope it's not too, too confusing, but essentially, if the model at the end comes out with a number like 0.6, mm. and the correct answer was one, which is dog, the difference between the 0.6 and the one is the kind of the amount of mistake it made, if that makes okay, sense. Yeah. And it will use that mistake to then change the model, update it. And when that, ha that update step has happened, the next time it sees another image of a dog, the idea is that it will get closer and closer to one as you give it more and more examples uh, and then that means that eventually over time it learns to get very very good and when it sees a new image it will know pretty confidently that it is a dog I hope that makes clever. sense yeah. <laughs> it's like some learning involved it's like a child it yeah learns exactly from mistakes kind lots of, of lots of like examples yeah yeah mm -hmm. so we're talking a lot about household pets mm, uh, true. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, how does that translate into healthcare then yeah that's a really good question so i think that in healthcare, there's there's a very big use of images in healthcare, and increasingly so, images are becoming the way in which we diagnose lots and lots of conditions. And we're developing lots of very advanced scans, which are very, very good at being able to look at your organs, and then we can look at those organs in great detail and say, like, okay, well, it looks like this organ's going wrong, or you've got this problem as a result of this scan. And so we want to, instead of using cats and dogs, we want to be able to sort of use these high-resolution mm -hmm. scans of, of your brain, of your, of your abdomen, of your thorax, or something like that be able to say, okay, well, this this scan shows that you've got this condition, therefore we need to, you know, make you see this specialist, or you need to have this treatment, or you need to have this biopsy, or this surgery, or whatever. So yeah, it's related very much to the, the kind of scans that we do in hospital. And I guess that the main reason that this is like relevant to healthcare and why it's a bit of a problem is that uh, at the moment when you're in hospital and you and you see a doctor and the doctor says, okay, well, I think we need to, we need to do like a, a brain scan, you know, that doctor who often requests that scan will not be able to understand what the scan shows themselves. Mm. They will request the scan. Once the images have been taken, the images are then sent to uh, another doctor who's called a radiologist specialists in these scans and images mm -hmm. and they will look through the scan very very carefully and they will then write a report on what they think the scan shows and then that report will then be sent back to the original doctor who requested the scan and then that will allow them to be to make a decision based on what the scan shows we've got roughly 30 percent shortfall in the number of radiologists at the moment mm -hmm. uh, and that means that there's not enough of them to interpret the scans in a timely manner. So what's happening is that people are requesting scans and there's a, increasingly a delay in the time it takes to write that report. And that means that for people who, there's, I guess there's two problems there. I think for the people who have, who are, who are healthy and they've had a scan, but they're not, they're not sure whether they're healthy or not. They're waiting a very long time and they're very anxious and worried. So they have to wait a long time for their scan to be then just be told that they're fine. But I think the more significant and worrying group is when you know you've got some condition which is getting worse over time or progressing or growing or anything like that and they're waiting several weeks for their scan to be reported all the time their situation is getting worse and sometimes irreversibly worse so they're having to wait 
an unacceptably long time to be mm. seen and treated. I guess the the other thing that's also important is that the cost associated with with interpreting and managing these images is very significant. So the NHS at the moment is spending tens of millions of pounds in outsourcing. So it's paying private companies who have their own specialist radiologists oh, okay. um, to interpret these in a faster way. And they think that by 2030, there'll be like a 400 million cost to the NHS of just paying these extra private companies to be able to interpret, that's a, that's a lot know, interpret of money. these images. So yeah. yeah, there's a there's a there's a pressing need to sort of try and address this. And I guess that bringing it back to the subject of the podcast, I guess that there's hope that AI would be able to use or be able to look at these images and interpret them to be a basically another tool in the toolkit that doctors have to be able to help improve the way in which we can look at these images. I guess filter out the, you know, people who are healthy and can just move forward with their lives and stuff and and flag up the people who yeah, need exactly. flagging kind of thing. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. I think that's probably like one of the main areas that would hopefully be useful is that there's many steps that we need to work through, I think, before we can get here. But I guess at some point it would be the, the ideal outcome would be to have a situation where you have your scan and maybe there's an initial vetting process that's been done by a by a machine learning model that we have tested and verified in a safe way. And then that can sort of filter out, so as you say, the percentage of people who are actually fine and they can be told that they're fine, but it can be trained in such a way that if there's something that feels like it needs to be flagged to a human or is, looks very suspicious, that that can be sort of seen as a priority. And then the radiologist will look at that as a first first cause. Oh, that's so interesting because I did not know that scans went to radiologists because mm. if I remember my days of watching Casualty on a Saturday, the doctor would just hold it up against, the, what is it called, the light box, mm-hmm, I think, mm-hmm. right? And he would find the answers, or she would find the answers, mm-hmm, and that was it. There yeah. was no other person involved in this in this process. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's that's kind of actually really old school now. Um, we don't have... What, a I, light I think box? What yeah, with, yeah, so I think what you're talking about is like you have this sort of like special x-ray paper, and then you would put it up against the light box and turn the light box on and have a look at the, the scan. Yeah. So yeah, it's that doesn't all, happen anymore. Yeah, that does not happen anymore. Um, thankfully, wow. the NHS has so, moved on. I watched Casualty I think, <laughs> so long ago. I think yeah, I think that's 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 broadly a fair way of putting it. You know, there are like a handful of scans that doctors mm. will be almost all doctors would be happy looking at, and so like a chest X-ray would be a classic one of those where like most, if not all, doctors are quite happy just to sort mm. of look at and interpret a chest X-ray, which is just a simple kind of at the front of the chest to sort of see the lungs and the heart but even then those would be reported on by a radiologist and yeah if you're ordering anything more complicated like a brain scan or a scan of your of your chest and tummy like that would be uh, something that would be done by a specialist for sure okay i think casualty need to like have you mm-hmm. on as a producer or something i don't know do they still run uh, I'm, not, I'm not sure so what does your specific research look at then yeah so i'm looking at a specialist type of scan, which hopefully like some people who are listening will be familiar with. It's called an OCT, which stands for Optical Coherence Tomography, which is a bit of a mouthful. But essentially, it's a very high resolution scan of the back of the eye. Oh, um, like in Specsavers. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. yeah. So it's one of these scans, which is it's, it's good because it's it's pretty cheap to perform. Yeah, you can get it done on the high street. It doesn't have any of this sort of worrying. It's called ionizing radiation, mm-hmm. which is where it can cause damage to your cells if you have them done time and time again it's actually it's a very safe scan and it's become what in medical speak we would say is the gold standard which basically means that it's a a very good scan for being able to look at diseases which are affecting the back of the eye so my research is looking at this kind of scan tying it back to what we were saying a little bit earlier we've got this idea of can we build a machine learning system which can say is this a cat or is this a dog Mm -hmm. my research is looking at trying to produce images of 
these OCT scans for specific diseases. So a common one would be like diabetic eye disease. And if we can produce examples of these images which are kind of fake or synthetic, the idea is, well, if we could use those images as the kind of training images, the ones that we use to improve the model and get it to work out what it's looking at, mm-hmm. um, would that mean that we can actually get a system which is more accurate at being able to classify or diagnose um, what's being shown on the scan? So do you get data from places like Specsavers, like real life data? Mm, yeah, exactly. And then feed it into the, the machine? Yeah. Yeah. And then it produces. That's exactly right, yeah. So we, we get images from, from data sets from various different hospitals, like Moorfields is where I'm currently working, and we can use those images that are of real eyes, uh, mm. and then we give a sufficient number of example images, and eventually the model that I'm using will then learn exactly how um, what those images look like, and then it can produce its own example version of that image. Using those examples, you hope to kind of diagnose like diabetic eye disease is yeah. quicker and mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. Exactly. Um, and I guess it, it trains the person on Specsavers mm-hmm. like to see it quicker or like the computer will just see it quicker yeah so I think that one of the things that's particularly we're kind of hoping for here is that lots of eye conditions are more or less common so diabetic eye disease is, mm-hmm. is really common and, we've, and that's quite useful for being able to train a model because we've got lots of example images but one of the problems is that for um, patients who suffer with rarer diseases, the number of example images we have to train models is is far, far fewer because of, by virtue of the fact that the disease is much rarer. So if we can get as many images as we can of this rare disease mm-hmm. uh, and then train the kind of model I'm looking at, the example is then we can produce a lot more examples of rare conditions. And that means that we can use those images to train the model better because they okay. tend the models tend to perform worse on conditions that don't have very many example images. So you get sense. like one real version of the image and then create... Mm. 50 fake ones yeah. and that will help the computer yeah, exactly. analyze it yeah. yeah exactly so that's exactly what's happening with the model that i'm training it's sort of when you give it all these example real images it basically learns um what the images look like so if you if you take something that we all know about for example like if you think about how tall a human is for example mm. and you get lots of examples of how tall a human is you'll be able to draw a map of of people in terms of their height so there'll be a lot of people who are average height mm-hmm. and there'll be very few people who are incredibly short and there'll be very few people who are incredibly tall and as you give more and more example um, heights to a model for mm. example you'll be able to draw a map of what the well, I guess the, the term we would use is the distribution which is how how they're spread out across the population and it's exactly the same for an image of a rare eye disease you give it lots of example images and it will learn okay well I can sort of see that sometimes the disease looks like this or sometimes it looks like that uh, and it will draw its own map and once it's learned how to draw its own map you can then tell the model like okay I want an image that looks like this kind of type mm-hmm. of rare eye disease or this this type of rare eye disease and it will be able to sort of create examples for you that you can then use to use it to mm-hmm. train these other models I was talking about. That's super interesting so computers training computers so if I went to the hospital I do have like an eye test coming mm-hmm. up but if mm-hmm. I went to the hospital would my data be used in mm-hmm. this how, how does it mm-hmm. work how do you get permission? Yeah I think that's a really important question actually and it's there's a lot of um, discussion and debate and amongst people who are like managing NHS data and how it's used because I think the topic of consent is a really important one especially when we're talking about using our own sort of personal data and discussing sort of what rights we have around how that is used and how it's shared. It will depend a bit on what kind of research you're doing and, and, and what kind of data you're using, whether it's sort of what we would call identifiable data, which means that this data is linked to a particular person, or if it's data that's anonymized, so it's data that we don't have any idea like who it's come from or, or, or sort of how to tie it back to a specific person. And there are various different rules around how that's used. But 
in general, it, you would be something that you would want to have your patients consented for or be aware of, and then they would sort of give permission for their scans to be used. And I think that like that does tie back to the work that I'm doing, I guess, because when we're the idea is that when we're generating synthetic data, this would be data that is something that would be well, it would require more research to check for sure that we're that it's all safe and and verifiable and, and good to use, but. With synthetic data, there's this idea that we could use that more freely and it wouldn't be it's mm. synthetic data, so it's not tied to any particular individual. And the idea is, well, maybe we could use that data. It would have less sort of restrictions, even though the restrictions are totally appropriate, on how that it could it could be shared and used for research more broadly and more widely. So, yeah, it's a really important area to be thinking about. To a lot of people, I guess, you know, who are listening to all these things about how bad AI can be. Is AI taking over everything? Is AI taking over the job of a radiologist in the hospital? So tell me a bit more about how disruptive, I guess, or how good AI can be. Yeah, I think in terms of how it will affect jobs, I don't think there's any sense in which it's going to replace the job of a radiologist anytime soon. I think that, um, as I was saying right at the beginning, radiologists are they're qualified doctors and they've got a huge level of sort of clinical and contextual mm-hmm. understanding. As I was kind of mentioning, it will be another tool in the toolkit where hopefully depending on how we evaluate and and go through these models in terms of how we test them and see how they perform, um, it'll be something that they can use to help them go through their workload in a more efficient and safer, faster way. As I was alluding to at at the beginning, that would hopefully mean that the for example, the amount of money the NHS has to spend on paying for these extra outsourced radiologists mm-hmm. will drop and it will mean that the cost and efficiency savings for the NHS will be very significant. But yeah, it will be used in context with working radiologists to be able to improve outcomes for patients. I guess my job will be safe too. I mean, I did use ChatGPT and it wasn't that great. Like, I think it's good as a starting point. And then I realised, hey, I can write better than this, yeah. like a lot better. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I think that... I think that um, yeah, I think I do buy into AI being something that is going to to change the way in which jobs work in quite a significant way. But mm-hmm. as you're saying, like it, it's the kind of thing where you can be like, well, you know, I don't know much about this topic. Let's ask ChatGPT yeah, or whatever model. It's a good starting you wish. point. Yeah, it's a good starting point, and it can come mm-hmm. up with a series of helpful sort of bullet points which you might not have considered, or it can mm-hmm. form a good structure at the start, and and you know, it can be used to sort of you know, as I say, like improve your output and um, you know, help you to to write things that maybe you wouldn't have initially considered or whatever. And I think that even if there was, you know, I don't think it's there yet, but even if it was to get to a stage where, you know, there were jobs that needed to change quite a lot, I think often the kind of thing that it's doing is removing work which can be kind of menial or annoying or like mm. tedious to write the same sort of boilerplate stuff over and over again. And it can sort of automate that stuff. And then that might mean that the job or the way in which the job operates changes slightly or you do less of one thing or more of a sort of, you know, human yeah, level thing mm. more. Um, and I think that that could be good so it's a kind of a way of sort of trying to adapt and and consider how these things are changing how we're working yeah i mean i think that's a good way to end things Mm. on a positive note Mm -hmm. thank you for joining us today peter it was a super interesting conversation and i hope everyone listening enjoyed it too thank you peter i know you've got a little photography website so i guess that in keeping with AI not taking mm-hmm, over mm-hmm, our jobs mm-hmm. and stuff like that. It can't take over photography. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and the niche that that is as well. So, yeah, follow Peter on Twitter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm on Twitter, um, at court.peter. And, yeah, I'm, I'm, I think it's super important for people to be able to have their creative outlets and um, and do their own individual hobbies. You know, um, so, yeah, I've got a you know, little bit of photography on the side and enjoy that. Yeah, it's good fun. Yeah, we'll put the Twitter handle and the photography website in the show notes so you can all check it out and uh, see how amazing Peter's photography is. Mm-hmm. Thank you for joining us today. And mm-hmm. yeah, speak to you soon, maybe, speak out in UCL. Mm-hmm. <laughs>
Health in a Handbasket is produced by UCL's Institute of Healthcare Engineering and edited by Keris Bradley. The Institute of Healthcare Engineering brings together leading researchers to develop the tools and devices that will make your life better. We're using this podcast to share all the amazing work taking place. You can learn more by searching UCL Health in a Handbasket or following the link in the show notes. So share with your friends and family if you found this interesting. We're available everywhere, especially where you just listen to us.